Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 1st, 2011, and my guest is Cliff Winston, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. His latest book, co-authored with Robert Crandall and Vikram Maheshri, is First Thing We Do, Let's Deregulate All the Lawyers. Cliff, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks. Good to be here again. Now, the title of the book is a takeoff on Shakespeare, uh, Henry VI, Part Two. First Thing We Do, Let's Kill All the Lawyers. You have a much more uh, a modest proposal which is to deregulate all the lawyers. And essentially in the book, you make the shocking claim, I think shocking to many, that America has too few lawyers. Uh, why is that? Well, again, I want to be, be a little careful here. I would, I don't, I'm not sure whether it has too few or too many. That, that There has been a debate about that. I, I think our, our position is whatever the number we have too few of them competing as intensely as they could be, and probably too many that are getting paid, you know, very, very high wages, um, and that that with competition we, we would see those kinds of uh, premiums fall. Now, in the end, whether we're going to have more or less um, is not really so much the focus of the book as much as the competitive changes that we'd like to see. But at this point, I'd probably speculate that, that we may have more, but that's something we can get into a, a bit later. Let's, so what's the evidence? Uh, why do you make the claim that there's inadequate competition? What's, okay. what's holding it back? Well, let's, let's first start with the institutional setting. And you know, there, there are interesting things here that are different from uh, other, other markets that, that appear to have these features. The key part about lawyers is what we call occupational licensing. That is presumably for reasons of information quality that people can't really tell in advance whether they're going to get a lawyer that's competent and honest and reliable. The way they want, the way policymakers have tried to address this problem is have a certification or licensing that someone has reached a particular threshold in terms of an examination that is passed and therefore is certified to provide the service giving you some certainty that what they do will be of, of reasonable quality. Okay, so that that's sort of an entry barrier there. Now, that, that, it comes in two forms. One, for most states, and this is a state-by-state matter, but, but for most states, you have to go to a law school that's accredited by an association, the American Bar Association, and they're the accrediting institution in this case. You have to go to that law school, and then after after finishing getting a degree, then you've got to take a bar examination that's given by the state. And most states, again, won't even let you sit for the bar unless you've gone uh, to the ABA accredited law school. So that's sort of a constraint on the supply side. Um, not everyone gets into an ABA accredited law school. We, we estimate in terms of the numbers that we got, roughly about half of the people who try to get in uh, are able to, to get in. And even even that number underestimates because there are obviously a number of people who are discouraged from even applying and spending the money on, on going to law school. So that's your sort of classic, you know, entry barrier on the supply side that's uh, restricting competition. 
So that's it. Yeah. That that uh, argument that you made um, you made very nicely that there's an information asymmetry. Perhaps it's hard to know what a good lawyer is, and so. What licensing does is it uh, makes sure that a certain minimum, minimal quality of lawyer skill is um, available on the market. That's a nice story. Right. Um, one of the effects, as you point out in the book at great length and uh, that we'll talk about, is that when you do that, of course, when you restrict the supply, you, you have effects on the wages of lawyers. So an alternative argument would be that these licensing requirements are in place to enhance the Income of lawyers. Uh, and I want to say, I want to preface this, all of my remarks, that many of my best friends are lawyers. I have a lot of friends who are lawyers, and I, I like them all. They're, they're fine. I don't think I know one I don't like. They're fine people. Uh, and uh, so nothing we're talking about here is, is to impugn the character or uh, skill set of any of the lawyers that you or I might know personally. But you make the claim in the book that and this is, of course, the, where the burden of proof is on those who would impose licensing. The question is whether it actually does protect folks, whether there are skills that a person could acquire without law school that could be helpful. But that person's not allowed to hang up a sign saying legal services for sale. They have to go through those hoops, those two hoops in almost every state of – uh, attending and graduating from an accredited law school and then passing an exam. And yet we know that there are many people capable of giving uh, useful legal services without those uh, skills, What's without those hoops. What, what are the, what's the evidence for that? Right. Well, at this point, I wouldn't say – first, let me, let me, let's backtrack and put it in historical context. You know, this is – these requirements obviously are not things that, that – uh, happened overnight. They, you know, it, it, it's really you know many years back when they started doing this, um, and and the, and so the American Bar Association sort of you know began its influence over licensing in the legal profession and and the the occupational licensing that we have today. Um, at that time, and uh, you know we talk a bit about that in the book. You know, there wasn't any evidence whatsoever that there were real problems with the quality of legal service to begin with. And actually, actually you know, the notion of accreditation took a while to take hold in many states because those who were lawyers weren't accredited themselves and hadn't gone to accredited law schools. Um, and so they themselves would be saying we're not qualified. So that's a charming point you make in the book. It's really important to notice that, by the way, because it's it's somebody had to be the first group of lawyers to say um, you were not accredited. And right? Yeah. It's that took some doing. It took some doing, and it took a while to to come in place. It wasn't that all of a sudden they said, "Hey, we have a real quality problem that was identified." It wasn't. Uh, we're getting a lot of complaints from consumers. Nothing who, like lawyers that. Lawyers don't know anything, or no, absolutely nothing like that, and no evidence that that uh, there was a problem that was solved. You know, this this kind of uh, organization took place, and slowly but surely, the accreditation took hold, and so it, it, we eventually had this thing, but it, as I said, it took time, and there was never any retrospective assessment to say, look how the quality of, of legal services has, has improved. So, you know, that would have been a nice thing to, to measure over time, uh, but we certainly know 
that we continue to have many different types of problems with lawyers in terms of uh, disciplines and scandals and all sorts of things. You know, that's that's largely anecdotal. At the same time, we have something called the unauthorized practice of law, where we do have people that are providing useful services, but they call they come under this very broad umbrella of unauthorized practice of law, which is whether helping with a will or helping with a divorce or or a company like Legal Zoom. Uh, you know, that, that tries to do some of these things uh, online, and they're providing helpful services, but, you know, they're shut down, or at least their efforts to, to, to have them shut down. And, you know, that's the kind of information at this point where we're suggesting that, look, it appears to be not everything, you know, requires a Ted Olson or a David Boys uh, to do. You know, a lot of this stuff really is not the kind of thing you need for three years of law school. Somebody could go to vocational school uh, for a year or so and provide that kind of service, as is we now are seeing in the medical profession sure. where you have a physician's assistant. And I think that's you know, that's sort of the idea in, in terms of intuition as to, to why we think that there are now things that we really don't need this kind of training for. Um, and obviously there would, be, would certainly be more competitive at that end. And this is an example. The book's about the legal profession, but of course, this problem is pervasive in, in all the occupations that are licensed. That there's a, a bootlegger and Baptist problem, to use a, a metaphor that we've used many times here that comes on the program that comes from Bruce Yandel, that you have a sort of high minded idea for why this regulation might be good, which is protecting the consumer. And then you have a venal, self interested motivation. And whenever you impose these licensing restrictions, you never say, well, it's important to have these so that lawyers can keep their salaries high. Uh, they, of course, say it's to protect consumers. Whether that's true or not, of course, is an empirical question. Um, and in- But it's also a conceptual one. And another point that I just want to add, that, that this is sort of an unusual style of policy. I mean, to the extent that we're talking about an information problem, most information problems are presumably addressed with information policies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, directly. Idea. Yeah. That the idea is, look, we're concerned about transparency. So, you know, why don't we have policies that are more directed, you know, toward transparency? How about like, a sign? How about a sign on your door that says, a sign on your wall of a certain size? I did not go to law school. That would be exactly one or inspection yeah. or, or ratings or, or suing or suing people for fraudulent or, or obviously or, or general business laws and we have a whole range of information policies uh, that that are in place in all sorts of other areas where we have concerns about information but in this area somewhat surprisingly the attitude is. Well, you know, we really don't want to focus so much on transparency. As a matter of fact, the American Bar Association really frowns on that in the sense that they don't like ratings of law schools. They don't endorse them. They don't endorse ratings of lawyers. They're all good. So they're all good, and we don't really want to support that kind of information dissemination. But what we really want to do is just say, look, don't worry about it. You don't really have to know anything really about them, will certify their good by making them go through certain hoops. And that is a very sort of strange way to deal with an information problem. The only point I wanted to add, though, <clears throat> to generalize this is that 
you know, this this occurs in lots of occupations, and some of them are way below the radar. Others are very much in the radar, above in the on the radar, which would be something like teacher certification, where uh, a high school or elementary school teacher is required to to get an education degree, uh, whereas I'm allowed to teach at uh, a university without an education degree. Somehow, right. incredibly. Uh, I'm well. Maybe I'm doing a horrible job. My students are being abused by my lack of teaching uh, skills. But uh, and of course, if you actually look, and this is the key point, when you look at what goes on in education schools, you realize it isn't necessarily require helping people to become better teachers. Similarly, going to law school, which is an interesting intellectual experience, perhaps uh, doesn't necessarily help you uh, very much in in a lot of the practical things that. That lawyers have to do, and and certainly in terms of judgment and other issues, they're they're not necessarily so helpful. Oh, so, I think law, and I think uh, clients are quite clear about it, and and so are law firms. You know, we got to teach these guys what they need to do, <laughs> and increasingly, clients are saying, you know, we're paying, you know, uh, big money for for these people, and they don't know how to do anything yet. Um, again. You know, the, the motivation there would be, well, why not a vocational school? Why not an online school that is clearly directed toward training people to do certain things? And let the market sort it out whether that kind of training is, is, is particularly useful. And, of course, there's a wide range of things called lawyering that, that uh, would vary a lot in how much skill, talent, and education might be required by the market. So you've got writing a will, filing for divorce – the, the whole filing idea, the whole idea of interacting with the legal system, real estate, um, all the things that we and our – if we're normal uh, law-abiding citizens don't uh, – those are things we have to use a lawyer for often. Uh, then there's you know, general counsel for um, Microsoft, an example you alluded to indirectly a minute ago. Uh, and then there's all the other things lawyers do in the regulatory system. We'll, we'll talk about that. But obviously, there's a wide range of skills that that a person could acquire that would be useful in the market that uh, for lawyer services. Uh, what's the evidence that this is a serious problem? It could just be that there's just not much uh, effect. Uh, yes, they restricted a little bit. Do we know whether they restricted a little bit or a lot? Yeah. Well, again, the, the there's the one part is, is is the supply side, and and that's again that is common to to other occupations too. But what also is is interesting about lawyers is they have a demand effect that a lot of the work that they do is generated by the government, and in particular by government policy and laws that generate increases in demand for lawyers. So they have a very nice situation, which you arguably is pretty much unique to the legal profession, that you have a restriction on the supply side because of these uh, licensing requirements, yet you also have pressures on the demand side to use lawyers for regulatory purposes, liability, all sorts of different litigation. Obviously, that, that combination of a restriction in supply and increased demand is putting pressure on wages. And a lot of then what we do in this book is try to see, okay, you know, what evidence is there that lawyers are earning what we call an earnings premium? Because at this point, we can't necessarily call it rents or some sort of inefficiency because there may be reasons that they're earning these things that are related to unobserved ability, unobserved skills, 
working conditions and so on and so forth. So, you know, bulk of the book, the book is first concerned with estimating earnings equations and determining uh, and estimating these earnings premiums, which, as I said, could come from two forces that admittedly we can't really decompose those, but, but theory certainly indicates that you've got two things going on on the supply and the demand side. And then working through all the various alternative explanations for why these premiums might exist and why they, why they might actually reflect efficiency effects, not, not inefficient restrictions or, or government-induced demand. And in the end, we come out that, you know, the bulk of this really is, is, are amounts to inefficiencies and, and large, uh, increases in earnings premiums, you know, with an associated deadweight loss in the, in the billions of dollars, but also then other distortions like increases in, in people, you know, in labor force, uh, shifting to legal work when they might have been attracted to another, another profession, and then, other associated restrictions with with regulations on competition in terms of innovation. Before we and go so though, and so forth. Before so, we get to the demand side, though, I want yeah. I want to just talk a little bit more about the supply side. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the so if you think about the restriction on the supply, the bar exam is uh, administered by the ABA. Is that correct? Or a state? Who, no, who states. Would, states do it. And they, uh, what determines how hard the exam is and the pass rates? I think that, that, again, that varies by individual state. You know, California is, is unusual in that they let anybody sit for their bar exam. Uh, you don't, they're one of the few states that says you don't have to go to an ABA accredited law school. You just to have to take pass our the exam. Test. You have to pass the test. And it's, you know, it's thought to be one of the hardest tests that are out there. Yeah, strangely enough. Yeah, strangely uh, enough. Just a coincidence. But, but that's to protect the consumer. Could be. Um, yeah, their argument is it's a screening device, yeah. and, and you know, that, that's how we're going to run it. We're going to let, you know, people with uncertain promise take it. Uh, if they can pass it, you know, they can practice. But it, it, it's a harder exam and, I guess, you know, a uh, harder pass rate. Um, I don't, you know, how they vary by the states. You know, I, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Although Wisconsin, how they do that. You, you and point Wisconsin's out the unusual that, that if you go to their law school, University of Wisconsin, then you don't even have to take a bar exam. If you, pass, if you graduate from the law, graduate school. there, that is certified uh, that that you're you're ready to practice law. Uh, but my point is, is that one bottleneck is that exam. And and presumably lawyers write the exam, and they're a little bit they have a kind of a conflict of interest in that they have an incentive to make the exam hard. Obviously, they make it so hard that almost nobody passes. There'd be a political uproar, and there'd be cost to that. So there's some balance there. The other issue would be the other bottleneck is the accredited for most states is the accredited law school, and it's hard to start a new law school, but it's not impossible. They do get started, so I'm, yes. I, I'm just curious whether that's a much well, of a, a, a constraint or not. Do we know? Yeah, you know, there's another interesting aspect to to, to the bar exam, and, and it really goes to show how how markets look for opportunities that are sometimes created by regulations. That's the bar review course. So here you have you know a private yeah. sector respond right. Where virtually, you know, everybody, large numbers of people, you know, take these bar review courses, which are not cheap, and which they themselves, you know, the, the company that does this, you know, is, is, has run into, you know, questions about, you know, what sort of monopoly they have on this. And obviously these things, I guess, are, are quite, quite helpful because they do extremely well in, in terms of business and get a lot of people to do it. And, you know, they help these people pass the exam. So in some sense, 
you you have this interesting conflict. If lawyers who write the exams want to keep people out, there's obviously some sort of private sector response to try to help these people get in. Well, it's like a mini, uh, it's like a mini law school, right? Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, a, a semi-law school for just passing the exam. Passing the yeah. exam, and it is obviously quite quite profitable. They teach uh, to the test, presumably. To do it. Te- oh, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> teach to the test, and, and I'm sure that's that's part of how they're they're they remain in business yeah. you, know, you take them and they and they report you know, that you take you take our review course but, but, and and you're going to and and you're going to and you have to increase your chances of passing but what about starting as a law school it, they do get started so they do get started and um they have to then go through an accreditation process and that accreditation though also can can put you on probation you know that people can look at the ABA can look at how you're doing and um so on and so forth but you know we do see that new law schools do get in but but obviously they they don't certainly re- react or respond necessarily to people who want to go to law school and and, and demand in general but it, they would if it, unless the ABA made it really hard. So I guess you know the question would be, again, there's a tension for the ABA. They, they don't. They might have a, a self interest. The members have a self interest in having no new law schools mm-hmm. uh, and having current law schools get smaller. Obviously, that would enhance their salary uh, as lawyers. But Absolutely. if they do that, it, it's embarrassing. People would notice that, and it would look gauche, and there'd be political pressure on them to. To, to act a little more leniently, but maybe there, maybe you're making a mountain out of a molehill here. Maybe the ABA accreditation is mainly a pro forma thing to make sure they go through the basics, and there's really no restraint on supply of lawyers. Oh, it's it's hardly pro forma. Um, you know, this is it's a big deal. I mean, it's 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 not sort of a you know a month process or anything. This stretches out for a number of years. Um, they don't make public the people who they turn down. But it's clear they do turn people down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they obviously don't let online law schools become accredited. They do not let foreign law schools uh, become accredited, uh, even if that was just very specialized work where, where it would make sense to, to, to have a, a law school education where you're working with some foreign country. So you know, they're, they're clearly having an effect. But interestingly, you're right that people in the profession think they're not having a big enough effect uh, that if anything, they say, "Look, you know, we just have too many lawyers, and this obviously starts with too many law schools, and you know, we just can't, we shouldn't really be accrediting anymore, and or you know, certainly slowing down the the rate in which which, which we've been accrediting law schools." Reminds me of when I tried uh, in uh, in 1976. I was in a shopping mall in North Carolina trying to get. Um, the Libertarian Party candidate Roger McBride on the ballot. Uh, one of the, my few forays into politics, and uh, I would accost passersby and ask them if they would like to see a third party. And many of them said, so they could have another choice. And many of them said, "We have too many already." Yeah, <laughs> I said, two? two? I mean, uh, I, I don't know." Um, but anyway, so it reminds me of that. Yeah, there's just way too many law schools already. We need, to, in fact, we need to. The ABA should shut more of them down for malfeasance. Um, but let's move to the demand side. One of the most interesting, um, thought-provoking sentences in the book, for me, I know it's not, it's it's sort of tangential, but I found it thought-provoking was the observation of how many politicians 
historically right. have uh, a legal background. Yeah. Yeah, presidents and obviously, you know, a big chunk of Congress and, and so on and so and, forth. And, it, sure. and this goes back, I, I can't remember, isn't there an historical part to the observation? It's not just current, right? No, 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 no. It, it, it goes way back, yeah. And I started thinking about that. I, I, why is that? And, and I think, you know, I think the standard answer, the standard answer is wrong. But Because the standard answer is, well, legislator, legislatures legislate and legislators, therefore, a legal background is very useful because they're writing law. That would be the standard answer, which I, there's something to that. But that would be why you'd want your staff to have a legal degree. Yeah. Um, I'm worried there's a, a, the other side of the equation, which is, well, who has the biggest incentive? Thinking in the most um, cynical terms about this that, that you're kind of alluding to and talking about what you do in the book, Lawyers as a Special Interest. You know, lawyers have the biggest gains, perhaps, from writing legislation. So that's a horrible thought. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, what what we point out is, you know, there is there's certainly self selectivity about you know who wants to be in government, but it's not permanent in the sense that that you have people that that go into government, and obviously this is basically making public policy, and these are public policies which they themselves could be affected by in other lines of work. Um, and certainly you, ha- you have a sort of a rotating situation of people who are in government and then also in, in, in the private sector and can obviously be affected by the law. Uh, they interact with people who, who are lawyers, uh, even if, if some of those lawyers never, never go into the public sector. And in a sense, it can be summed up and they speak the same language. Yeah. Uh, they're comfortable with each other. They're comfortable thinking about issues uh, in, in a common framework. Uh, certainly they enjoy the self-regulation that, that, that lawyers have. And, you know, when you think about it, this is, you know, a very powerful interest group, which is really what got, got us onto the topic, uh, that is fundamental for shaping and implementing public policy. And it's in a profession that, that we really have never looked at very closely in, in terms of how they go about affecting things. And and certainly the one thing that they're going to affect are their benefits as as a group. And I, you know, one example of that, which um, deeply depressing to me, is is tax policy, which is labyrinthine, uh, complex, opaque, and of course generates work. <laughs> it generates a lot of work for tax lawyers. And when you talk about tax reform and simplifying the tax code, which is a perennial uh, empty rallying cry of politicians, right? Uh, the thing, the biggest push, most citizens want simpler taxes. Of course, they want lower taxes too, but um, generally higher for other people, lower for themselves. But the biggest interest group that fights tax simplification isn't the ideologues on one side of the size of government debate or the other. It's the people who benefit from the system, which are accountants and tax lawyers. And I think we forget about how the role that tax lawyers play at both the corporate and the private and the individual level in that process. And they're going to provide input into the laws. I mean, you know, a lot of these, these discussions take place uh, as all regulatory policy we know. You know, in any area, you know, I certainly know in airlines, you know, the FAA, they talk with people in the industry. Um, 
some of these people, again, go back and forth uh, between private sector and the government. And obviously, when people are making laws, they're going to be talking to, to people who they're going to be affecting. And obviously, the uh, people in the legal profession are going to have some pretty powerful inputs in, into things that affect them. And again, as private citizens, we might encounter the legal profession when we go to buy a house and we need a lawyer when we close on a, on a real estate deal or something uh, you know, something's similar in our daily lives. But so many lawyers are doing things that we don't notice or see. And one I'd like you to comment on, which always uh, amazes me, is writing regulations. Um, that when, we legis- when the legislature, when Congress passes an environmental law, for example, the actual details aren't written by Congress but are hammered out by the agency and then fought over in these weird judicial proceedings that most of us, again, never – encounter or know anything about, but it, it's a big employment um, source for lawyers, and it's the way we do public policy at the ground level. Well, it's heavy. Yeah, I mean, these are intense negotiations, so to speak. I mean, obviously, you're going to get inputs from competing teams in the private sector and the public sector, so to speak, or representation of the public sector. And, you know, these things also, you know, they're complicated, they take a long time, and they can be challenged, and that's, then they're going to give you another round of negotiations. You know, before all these things are, are hammered out, and obviously, again, that's sort of generating work that that has to be done. And then, you as a lawyer need you know the legal profession needs people that will help you understand this law. Um, you know, we wrote it; we, we're we're hired to tell you uh, how it works. But you know, one thing that then stands out is one thing you're not hired to do is to step back and assess assess is this a good law in the sense of economic efficiency or social welfare or what have you. It, it, it's something that I think is is an area of concern since really we're talking broadly about public policy and we basically have a major group who have input to public policy where they see their major job, and this is true, is to basically just understand what that policy is, but never step back and say, hmm, is this really a good thing that I'm doing in terms of promoting efficiency or welfare for the country? And I don't even think the training, for the most part, is that way uh, when you're in law school. But I've, I've never been. But well, it the same, seem that that's the kind of thing that goes on. Well, the same thing can be said about economists. Um, you know, we, for better, for worse, I think for better, we are unlicensed. Anybody can claim they're an economist. You don't need a PhD in economics. Um, and you don't have to get a PhD for a, a first-rate place. Uh, anybody can can be an economist and offer opinions. And within public policy circles, of course, um, often their economists are advocating for one particular position or another, not necessarily based on whether it's good for the country, but whether it's good for them. <laughs> well, uh, let's hope, let's say, on, on the better parts of the profession that when economists do advocate policies, they do have a grounding in welfare. I mean, I like to think that's sort of the, the standard that's been set, um, that that the contributions that we do make to public policy are things that are genuinely thought of as, as going to be improvements in efficiency and welfare, and that we're doing this with an analytical and, and scholarly foundation that, that leads to results that are testable and refutable. Well, so, me, I mean, I do think that, that totally tradition... Just, <laughs> it's a nice the, idea. You know, uh, I, I think <laughs> the tradition is in the profession. Let me put it this way. I, mean, I, think, I, think, I think there's clearly abuse. There are clearly people who don't have those standards. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we know the earliest empirical assessments and regulation and so forth 
you know, were carried on carried out by you know first rate people with with certainly the the, the right kind of uh, ideas on why we why we're doing this stuff. Well, let me just let me just put in a, a small uh, example of why I think that's overly um, cheerful. Um, how many economists do you think there are alive right now who think they have the potential to be on a short list for chair of the Fed? It's, it's, who, 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 in terms of in terms, they feel of, of their ability yeah, to, to chair the Fed. They have a shot at it, you know, because they've done a lot of good work on oh, I see. policy. Um, it's, it may be a hundred. Yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to say anywhere from you know fifty to one hundred and fifty. There's not a. There could be a thousand people, of which nine hundred are deluded into thinking they're yeah. in the top one hundred. That could easily be, but it's not. It's not more than a thousand. It's certainly not more than a thousand. But then no. you'd have to ask the question of the top. Let's say 100 monetary scholars. Right. Uh, how many of them think they have a decent shot? And the answer might be 112% of them. I think most of them think either that they have the capability or the potential or a real shot at it. And given that, what's their, what's their incentive to speak honestly about the impact of the Fed on the U.S. economy? I'd say it's muted. Uh, so no, like I, think, I, I think there are pressures, certainly, that – can implicate or influence a scholar um, to get him off him or her off track, whether it be sort of obviously private sector opportunities with consulting people are obviously care, careful about that yep. the, that they have ambitions for political appointments um, I've certainly thought about that and realized that there's no reason for me to worry about it anymore because there's just no way there's just too much I have out there that would cause too much trouble for me. Congratulations. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've put that out of my mind, that's for sure. Um, and I, and that, I'm sure, again, that, that, that does go on. But there are obviously people, you know, Milton Friedman was, was, was sort of a purist in, the, in that regard. Paul Samuelson, too, you know, made it clear that they were not looking for that, that, that kind of life and, and kept with their academic work. Certainly, people in economic theory aren't and, and econometric theory aren't. So, you know, there obviously is a distribution out there of, of people that, that can and, and are influenced by, by external forces like government or, or private sector. You know, I just – I think it's a – I've come to believe it's a very serious problem. I could be – I could be – It exists. It exists. I, I, I would say – I wouldn't go as far as saying it's pervasive in the profession that, that I think we still Correct. have people that are, that are scholarly and, you know, doing things that, that – that you know, attempt hopefully to build a, a core of, of scholarly understanding of the efficacy of, of public policy. I think you know to turn it back to the legal profession. I think that, in many ways, is is one of my concerns. You know, they are so wrapped up in actually trying to execute these laws, and 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 certainly a lot of them benefit them either by giving them work or or raising their salaries. That you know they don't step back and say, hmm, you know, really, is there a way once and for all that we could greatly simplify the tax code um, to at least on the transactions cost part of it, start reducing that mergers and acquisitions? Do we really have to be spending the kind of money we are for these things? You know, let's set aside whether these are are useful uh, investments for the acquiring firm. Just you know, the process of it is extremely costly. You know, so on and so forth. You, know, you just don't seem it, it, to have right? that culture in the profession, in that profession, where they're really sort of saying, you know, what exactly is you know patent policy? You go down the list that where we could save you know billions 
in transactions costs and inefficiencies if, if we change things. I just don't see the incentive there. Well, um, you know, the, it, others, the flip yeah. side would be that isn't the lawyer's job. And so – No, it isn't. So let me ask, let me ask the, the, the question a different way. Um, and I'll, I'll use intellectual property because uh, I have a, a number of good friends who do IP, and uh, they all tell me how important it is that we keep the current regime. And they could be right. They could be right. But but let's let's ask the question. There are many economists who have started to question whether the current intellectual property regime of copyrights and patents is too restrictive. Right. And or does if, anything good. Or does anything good, that the incentive effects are outweighed by – by the, the the costs and restrictions on innovation that, that result. Obviously, there's a trade-off. And right. when you give people a monopoly, a monopoly through a, a patent, the idea would be you're creating an incentive for innovation and you're willing to accept some monopoly pricing in the short run. Um, and the, the same for copyright. So the argument – what I'd be worried about, and tell me if, if this is a worry, is the role those lawyers would play in attempts by others to liberalize that system. So – Economists come out and say many – of course, there's, there are economists on both sides. But many economists say now we need to liberalize the patent and copyright regime. And my worry would be not so much that lawyers don't think about it. I, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to. What role do they play as lobbyists and push back on that kind of reform? Oh, I, th- I think – yeah, I think there's, there's indications that, that they do have an active role, I think, in, in – in raising questions about you know whether whether we really want to have this kind of extensive patent reform, make things simpler, you know, get down the litigation costs, so on and so forth. Now we are you know there there is this possibility that we're going to change instead of um, <clears throat> first to invent to first to file. But even there, you know, I, I, it would be nice if if the legal profession you know could weigh in and say, hey, we see that this is a good move. Toward reducing transactions costs instead of you know setting things up well, you know we don't see a problem here because we're going to be dealing with these large firms and we'll be helping them just you know generate tons of patent applications to you know beat it, beat it on the first to file and we'll still see that we'll be heavily involved in litigation whether you know we've really sort of uh, been first to file that we have something that that got there first and is being infringed upon. And no, I, I don't see the incentive uh, in the legal profession in that. I don't see uh, major areas of reform that are obviously going to improve that uh, that area of economic activity. And they certainly, lawyers as a group, make large contributions to politicians. Um, liability and tort reform presumably have been hampered or uh, killed by uh, that were that that effect. Well, certainly there's circumstantial evidence that, you know, it's hard to get, you know, hard direct correlations between these campaign contributions and, and the policies we observe. I mean, again, there's work on that. It's obviously, you know, difficult to, to you know, pin it down completely. But certainly we the areas where a status quo bias, let me put it that that way, that that the legal profession has certainly supported certain people and we don't see the kinds of reforms of actual public policies where we might see efficiency improvements, whether it be patent policy, liability, so on and so forth, moving in that direction. Instead, we have a status quo bias, which you know, I think continues to, to benefit the legal profession. So let's go, let's go back to the book. Yeah. Uh, as you say, you spend 
the book, by the way, is quite short. It's 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 a monograph. It's about 110 pages, I think. It's under 120. Uh, it's short. Uh, a chunk of it is tries to estimate empirically the premia uh, that lawyers earn for uh, due to these uh, effects of restricting supply and increasing demand. And obviously, it's a challenge, hard to do, as you point out, pointed out earlier, and point out in the book. A lot of other factors that are hard to observe, hard to measure. Give me the bottom line of what what your best estimate is of the impacts. Well, bottom line, the impacts are that you know premium have been uh, in the legal profession, uh, you know, anywhere from I think twenty to twenty five percent at the beginning part of our sample. But but the interesting thing is they've grown. That is, you know, as there's been effectively tighter restrictions on entry is more people want to go to law school, but the spaces haven't opened up. And at the same time, growing demand for legal services, we see the premium growing over time, um, which, again, would be consistent with with the theory and is not something that is, that is replicated by many other professions uh, also, which is interesting, up to close to, to 50%. And then we convert this into deadweight losses uh, that, you know, it's certainly in the billions of dollars and as you know, associated deficiencies of, of labor supply distortions and also re- restrictions on innovation and so on and so forth. But when you say 50%, you're saying that lawyers earn 50% more than they would in a, quote, free market? Yes, that's right. But So you're not talking about, I assume you're not trying to measure the demand side then. That's just the supply. No, th- I mean, this would be, as I said, we, we, we are confounding both the supply and demand effects simultaneously. Because... A lot of people would say that the rest, a lot of the things that increase the demand for lawyers, regulatory complexity, et cetera, many would say those are good things. They're important. Uh, they produce good public policy, and right. lawyers are the beneficiaries of it, just like you know, they're, they've got an upward-sloping supply curve. So anything that pushes up the demand uh, is going to mean they make more than they otherwise would. And that's right. good. And that's good. Right. So what's why is there something to be worried that's about? That's a here? fair argument. The the key thing though that we do in the book is we don't just estimate the premium, then we ask the question, okay, what what seems to be determining these premiums? So we look at particular policies and try to, you know, quantify, characterize their effects over time, because that's what we want to do is see what what's what's been changing over time. And the ones that we seem to find to influence the, the change and, and growth in the premium are ones that arguably are not things where there's clear evidence that they're generating social benefits, like liability policy, where clearly we, we have you know, demonstrated huge costs and questions about, about whether offsetting benefits exist. Um, Areas of regulation, again, generating costs. Hard to see that you're getting compensating benefits. Even the Obama administration is looking to try to curb, curb uh, regulatory excesses. Good luck with that. Patent policy, which we've talked about, again, you know, it, it, it's not like we're seeing things where you can point to you know, criminal law or other areas where you think are clearly generating benefits to society. There are things where if you look at the external academic evidence assessing the efficiency effects of these policies, it's very hard to make a strong case that these things are generating positive net benefits. So in a sense, you get it both ways. You get these things sort of influencing premium benefiting to lawyers, and then you've got 
a, a situation where you've got a status quo bias of lawyers having incentive to keep these policies, which are not doing things that are particularly helpful for social welfare. So the question I had is I – and I, I, I think it's very difficult to measure these things obviously, but the direction seems clear. The question then is one of magnitude, and the magnitudes are hard to measure. But my, my thought was the following. The real problem here is the demand side. The real problem is the are regulations that don't – that aren't good regulations. Uh, so for example – it's true that because of law school restrictions and the inability of people in licensing, then buying a house, getting divorced, these daily life uses of the legal system, they're more expensive than they otherwise would be because if, if law schools expanded by, say, 20 or 25 percent in terms of the number of slots available and the number of applicants that are accepted, uh, I assume that would dry, help keep the price of those services relatively low. But I don't think it would have much of an impact on antitrust legal activity, uh, mergers and acquisitions, the regulatory sparring that we talked about in the, in the as these regulations get written and, and codified. The, 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 the marginal 10 to 20 percent, say, of, of rejected law school applicants, they would not be going into those – applications and pushing down the premiums. So when you're looking at the premiums, I, my suspicion is you're overwhelmingly picking up the demand for lawyers via regulation, which uh, then it's just a question of regulation, not so much the way the legal profession is structured. Do you agree? We're, well, we're trying to get at this through the, through the back door, so to speak. I mean, you're certainly correct. It, you know, the, the real payoff would obviously be if we lived in a world with efficient public policies. Um, right, you know, straight there. You know, we eliminate all the inefficiencies with those policies, and then we sort of eliminate, in a sense, the incentives for the legal profession to behave in particular ways to try to have try to preserve a status quo bias. Yeah. Okay. I think try, and I think since we're obviously guided by you know what policy recommendations we're going to make, you know, we're realistic and saying, look, it's, people have been trying forever to improve these policies. That, that's obviously a tough nut to crack. So I think we peel back a bit and say, look, let's now focus then on the profession and say, if we could reduce their incentives for keeping status quo bias, possibly with competition in a number of these areas, not all of them, but some of them, you know, that might be an effective first step. And so that's why we focus on deregulating entry. So let's it, talk about through that, that mechanism where we think, okay, if in a number of these areas we start seeing, you know, far less that government can deliver in terms of premium to lawyers, they then turn will say, look, you know, there's no point in us trying to support these things anymore. Perhaps we can sort of see a positive direction in, in reform. But so again, that, to, that part's more of a leap, I agree, no, than, so than more directly to, hitting the policies You're themselves. trying to lower the... The premium in hopes that that would change the uh, incentives to lobby accordingly. That's right. Uh, what policy – at the end of the book, you talk about what policies you you think would make things better. So talk about what they might be, and if you'd like, you can give me your um, – a quick estimate of how politically plausible they are. Well, I mean, the, the heart of our policy recommendation is just outright deregulation, Um you know, let's let lawyers compete at a number of of different levels. So certainly, entry level people, 
would would be able to enter and compete. You don't have to go to law school. Uh, presumably, though, we would see again private res- private sector response. This is a key part of almost everything that, that that I say here. That people will sort of statically look at the legal profession and don't anticipate that when you open things up in deregulation, you start seeing other parts of the economy change to account for that in ways that are very difficult to anticipate under regulation. So my point being, in this case, with deregulation, yes, we probably see more active online law schools, vocational law schools. I don't think people would think, you know, I'm, I'm just going to come out of high school and, and, and practice uh, being a lawyer, although <laughs> there was, at the beginning of the book we mentioned one guy that actually did that. He was 15. And was quite, wasn't he quite 15? successful. He was 15. He wasn't, yeah. adult, he wasn't even finished with high school. <laughs> he wasn't even finished with high school. He was giving advice on a website, right, that people yeah. seemed to like, that was good, that was useful. Oh, yeah. No, he, 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 he's the starting point for the book. Say, you know, here's somebody who hasn't even finished high school, but, but is, you know, is, is reading, reading law uh, in a library and saying, here's my advice on how to handle a particular problem. But in any case, you know, our expectation with deregulation would be, you know, we see people going to online law schools, vocational schools, you know, maybe even going to, going to fancy law schools, but going for one year. Who knows you know, what kind of response there would be, but we think there would also be a supply response. So in, in more of the traditional things, we, we get competition there. At the higher end, uh, a point that, that I want to make that, that people don't realize is that you can have a law firm that is owned and run by lawyers, but if you're a corporation, the only legal services that you're able to have are through a general counsel advising you. You, know, you, can't, you can't be an investment bank and say, you know, not only do we help you with your banking, but we'll also provide extensive legal services with that, uh, or a financial company or, any, or any, anything else. And so we see other parts of the economy competing in legal services, corporations. And who knows what, what kinds of things might develop there, uh, which, again, I think would compete uh, at the high end, so to speak, uh, and, and, and reduce the premium that, that exists. So, you're so saying, you know, yeah. we see throughout the, the legal profession, there could be just a dramatic change in the, in, in the services that are offered and the way that people are trained. And, of course, you know, once you open the floodgates deregulation, the biggest payoff, as we have now learned, is innovation, which is so hard to anticipate, although we're starting to see some cracks in the system now, but, you know, could basically sort of lead us to saying, hey, you know, there are ways of doing these things that are just so much more efficient and so much more transparent and so much more accessible to people in all walks of life that that it's just, you know, a dramatically different profession. So I want you to emphasize the institutional point you just made in passing. I think I didn't know this until I read, until I read the book. Uh, you have to be a lawyer to run a law firm. Mm-hmm. Right? You right. Have, you have to Don't, be licensed. Yeah, if, you're, if you're looking to do that as an economist, good luck. It's not going to happen. So, <laughs> or just, even an MBA. So to take an analogy, um, Walmart and CVS and Walgreens now offer a, a, a legal but innovative and, and I think had to, took a while for it to be legal where you, you can walk in and say get a flu shot. Right, exactly. Administered by somebody who's didn't get it. Not an MD. I've no. got them, and they work fine. 
Absolutely. It's not a difficult thing to administer no. a flu shot, although I'm sure that when it was proposed, a lot of doctors explained why it was dangerous to let right. unauthorized – because there could be a complication, et cetera. Sure. Um, so the question would be when you go to Walmart or CVS, you could have a, um, a legal window where you got services for a real estate deal, of that's divorce, right. et cetera, and that's not legal right now. Is that correct? Absolutely not. Okay. So that's interesting, and that's the kind of inf- innovation that we could imagine if this market were allowed to be a little more uh, free. Yeah, and and the way that you know people would be trained and how they'd interact with other with other with other people providing these services, so on and so forth. Sure. So, uh, the, and then the idea would be that this would, um, you know, one thing we didn't talk about. We we're talking about the distortions of the labor market that occur because of this. Of course, all the rejected but, lawyers who don't get into law school have right, they, they could go into these kinds of things. Right. But now they have to go into something else. Absolutely. Which pushes down the right. wages in those fields, right. which makes those activities less expensive, which means we do too much of those things. Correct? Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah, I mean it's I mean I think just the, the general obviously you know, people who are lawyers or, or people who are not but nervous about change, you know, look at this. And you know, they fear the chaos and commotion, as uh, you know, people did with deregulation of, of, of transportation, energy, finances. And obviously, they look at the, the, the disturbances that we've had that, that often, though, have nothing to do with deregulation, but they're external shocks. And you know, they just get, they get nervous, if not terrified. But you know, what you've got to realize is that there are responses that, that the sort of creative parts of the market, both on the demand and the supply side, that generate things that you can't see that will lead to changes. So it won't be that we have too many lawyers now and all we're going to do is just lead in this flood of you know, unqualified, incompetent people. You know, there will be changes in the types of services offered, the way people are trained, the way they deal with customers, you know, the, the marketing of law, I think, will be just dramatically different. How firms compete, all these kinds of things you know, will change to, to, uh, to, I think, meet these kinds of objective, objections. Quality, you know, concerns about, well, you're just going to let these people in who are incompetent. We have, bad, you know, we have, we have enough problem with lawyers now when you, when you talk with people who are indicted and involved in fraud and, 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 and everything else. You know, just think what you're going to get now. What do you think is going to happen? There's going to be a private sector response to that. You know, there's going to be a Zagat. You know, there's, there's going to be a, an Angie's list. There's, there are obviously going to be ways that the private sector, if this is a problem, will try to say, look, we're going to give you ways of determining quality uh, and getting some sort of rating will, will be probably something that might be important if there really is a problem in determining the quality of lawyers. But these are things that will happen in the overall response to deregulation, as they have in other industries. And you know, people then will, will turn and point to, well, you know, look, look at what financial deregulation gave us, the crisis. Of course, we know it's far more complicated than that. And I think we also know that when we come out of all this, these institutions will be stronger. So I think it's understandable that there's a lot of fear about all this. But I think what people you know, sometimes don't appreciate is that there's a lot of opportunity for just dramatic changes on both sides of the market. Yeah, imagining those responses, of course, is what the study of economics is. It's about a huge – it's a huge part of what makes economists economists, right? Yeah. It's the ability to imagine those things and 
I think for the non-economist or the self-interested lawyer, uh, those responses are harder to anticipate or, or see or, or notice. Or to think about objectively. I yeah, think well, you know, they'll, they'll look at it and just see only bad things happening. You know, bad, incompetent people you know, who are far worse than who we have now. And you know, this could not possibly work. Just a horrible idea. And it'll ruin the profession and, and ruin consumers, even people who are, who are not even so self-interested will think that. But, you know, as, as, as we pointed out in, in an op-ed, you know, remember in the 70s, that people thought if we deregulate airlines, it'll result in a monopoly of United Airlines. And it didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, it led to lower um, prices. But, you know, there's also another thing, too, that, that I think is, is a benefit of, of the United States in, in thinking about regulatory reforms, is that we have the possibility of experimenting. You know, airlines were, was not a, de, a national deregulatory policy at first. You know, we could learn from the states that had basically a form of deregulation. California and Texas are, were obviously important uh, experiments. We can do this in the case of the legal profession. You know, we don't have to have a national policy. I think and I hope that we'd see some individual states just experimenting with relaxing some sort of entry requirements, or at least be being more open to having paralegals, being able to actually practice law and certain services and just saying, look, in the same way that, that physician's assistants are, there are a number of things that we can just have these people do. They don't even need the supervision of a lawyer and see that prices are lower and that uh, lower-income people now have access, have access, access uh, to legal services you know, moving incrementally at the state level, I think, is obviously the way to go with these policies to show people, look, they're not going to be the horror stories that you think this can happen, and it can happen in a positive way. Yeah, I think what we should do is if, if you don't have a law degree, call yourself a lawyer, but you have to spell it L-A-W-Y-U-R. You know, and that way it would distinguish <laughs> no. the, the folks who didn't. It's, that was a joke. But, but Or a legal practitioner. Just say a legal, legal practitioner. practitioner. Like nurse practitioner. Exactly. Uh, the question, we're almost out of time. One reform that has taken place that surprised me that it happened, and it was treated with a great deal of anxiety, which I suspect turned out not to be true, was the legalization of advertising law ser legal services. And, and I think you can legally – that was a big deal, right? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So when you're watching late night TV or not so late night TV and you see an ad for for lawyers, a lot of people say, well, this is a bad idea. Uh, it's going to lead to higher prices because all that advertising is going to be wasted expenditure. It's going to be an arms race between law firms. All do is raise costs and it'll lead to higher prices. Economists said no. And can they advertise price? Can can a uh, can law firms advertise price? I don't know. I, I, you know. I'm not aware of any restrictions, but, but to be honest with you, I've never really seen anyone do it. But anyway. So apparently, I, apparently it seems like the information content of legal advertising is more just the existence of certain services. But people who are you know, just trying to sort of just attract you to saying, look, we can help you. But I've not, I've not seen prices explicitly but I assume, I assume that was very controversial, that a lot of law firms opposed it, and yet it happened anyway. Um, and that gives us hope that perhaps some reforms of competition, encouraging competition, could actually happen. Yeah, no, I think, I think with all of the deregulatory movements, once you, you know, when you see cracks in the system, again, this is the power of the private sector looking, looking for ways to be innovative. 
you see firms that are not the traditional firms trying to do things differently. And I think that we need to see more of that, but we're seeing these sort of you know, low-cost law firms and you know, online-type services. I think those are the kind of cracks. You know, those are the Freddie Lakers you know, of, of, of airline service. Those are the sort of you know, people who think, you know, we can do this at lower cost. And that, that should, instead of getting people upset, should say, you know, they're really trying to tell us something that we can do things differently, we can do things in, in, a, in a more efficient way. And instead of being scared of it, the strongest people who are, who are currently in the profession say, you know, this might even help us because it'll expand our way of, of doing things and in, in, in thinking and so on and so forth. And I think that's, that's the things that we ought to be looking at, and hopefully they, they are going to sort of show demonstrations and experiments because once things start to move in a particular way, and especially if they're positive, then we get momentum, and then we get policy change. So we'll, well see. Your mentioning of Freddie Laker brought a smile to my face. Um, Google away, folks, if you're not old enough to know who he was uh, or who he is. Uh, my guest today has been Cliff Winston. Cliff, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.